All right, KISS Army, welcome to the KISS FAQ Podcast. Thank you for giving us your time today. I don't think it's into your head. I hope you don't do any damage. This is a KISS-related podcast by the board for the board. We hope that you enjoy. Welcome to episode 103 of the KISS FAQ Podcast. I am... Running Point, I am your host this week, Lonnie Weissar, STL Kiss on the board. And joining me on the show is the admin, Julian Gill. Hey, Lonnie. Author, James Campion of Shout It Out Loud book. Welcome back, James. We've, James was on to talk about his book when it came out. And Destroyer. And now, I'm only going to come on when there's Bob Ezrin produced. He only comes on when there's Bob Ezrin discussion. <laughs> Proper. <laughs> And welcome, and Joe, is this your second episode you've been on or this third? This is my third. Your third? Yes. Joe, back on the show for the first time in a long time. Welcome back. I just back. want to say obscure reference to the book. I want people out there to try to figure this out. How you doing? How you doing? That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> it's in the book. <laughs> so if you've read the book, leave it in the comments. All right. For the, for the, for the thread on FAQ. Because today, what we're talking about is Odyssey, the definitive examination of music from the Elder, Kiss's cult classic concept album by Tim McFate and our very own Julian Gill. Congratulations, though, Julian, uh, it's from fantastic. one author to another. It really was Herculean work by you and Tim, uh, and I wrote about it in The Aquarian, and uh, I reviewed it on Amazon for you guys, but I, I have to say it's just a fantastic piece of work for me. Well, thank you, James. I mean, obviously, from someone who's uh, you know gone down the same path as you did with your excellent "Shout It Out Loud," the thank History you. of Destroyer book, um, you know, very similar in many ways are two books, uh, but you know, the work that you put into yours and the narrative form that yours took it takes uh, a lot of effort, and you know. Just before we get started on anything, I want to give a shout-out to Tim McFate. I mean, obviously his name's first in the credits for a reason. This book was conceived, the project was conceived by Tim. It was his idea. Um, it was his execution on the vast majority of the interviews that go into the work. So, you know, kudos to Tim for seeing that through while he was co-admin on the FAQ message board and site. Agreed. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Best, you know, the gold standard for Kiss books is the um, book by Chris Lent. <clears throat> this book is definitely up there with there with uh, the Chris Lent book. Um, I've read it twice now. It's just fantastic, the minutia, and I've, I'm just fascinated by this part of history because of what was going on with the band and how it transitioned into the not the '80s, the non-makeup era, and then the, finally the reunion and everything else. So it's, yeah, just a great piece of work. Thank you, Jeff. I, I, I thought it. I thought you were gonna really just throw hosannas at Julian's feet and say that the that the uh, best Kiss book of all time is the Kiss album Focus. But oh, no. <laughs> oh. don't bring that up. Even mentioning me in the same sentence as uh, you know Chris Lent is uh, you know come on Kiss and Sell. That was incredible. Still is to this day. And Chris Lent is a part of this book, which is absolutely great. yeah yes yeah. So. It's a little intimidating for me to be hosting this week because I'm host because the panel consists of two gentlemen who have written books about Kiss. 
And people always say to me that, well, Lonnie, you know more about Kiss than anyone. And when Julian was doing the podcast and I was thinking about joining, and I joined like in episode three or whatever, I was intimidated the first time I came on with Julian. It's like, you know, Julian's going to like correct me about something that I misspeak about because he knows so much more about Kiss than I am. So now I'm on the show with, with two authors today. So I really got to make sure I fact check myself before I start speaking. Get, well, it, get, I just wanna, give it up. I, I just want to jump in. I, I, I watch this show uh, eating lunch every week whenever you guys post it. And I marvel at the speaking of minutia that you guys know about Kiss. I, I can't even begin. I mean, I spent three years plus of my life on Destroyer and the early days of Kiss, and I've read all the Kiss stuff, but I learn something new about the band and whatever era from you guys every week, so never sell yourself short. Everybody who's been on the show knows way more about Kiss than me. <laughs> i just like to say that I believe that writing a book is one of the greatest accomplishments a man can, or a man and or woman can do. It's just such a great undertaking, and I have so much respect for anyone that can do that. I've attempted it a few times, and then it just goes down the toilet. But one day I hope to write a book, maybe about the Wendy Williams album, Julian, if you want to <laughs> possibly uh, hey, get something why, going there. But... Why not? Is there any book on the <laughs> yeah. plasmatics or Wendy O out there? You know? No, do it. Do exactly. it. I'll tell you, Joe, there's always the, the toilet moment. I'm sure <laughs> Julian knows what I'm talking about. No Watch matter what it. you're working on, if it's successful and it gets published or people buy it or don't, or if it's a novel or a nonfiction or fiction, there's always that moment. So you got to swim, get yourself back out of the toilet, and that's the only advice you can give anybody. But what you went through happens to us all. Trust yep. me. And I've got a thousand-page manuscript sitting right over there that was started in 1995 that will never see the light of day hasn't been touched in 15 years so you know you write you work you research and sometimes it takes you to where you think you can share it with the world and sometimes it's something that you think you'll just keep to yourself for the betterment of mankind <laughs> <laughs> so true so i think the first question that has to be asked is why the elder why write a book about kiss's least successful album an album that some fans love, but it's also an album that the band itself ignores, criticizes, plays down like it's a mos mistake. Why Why take the challenge, Julian, of writing and gathering all the information out about a Kiss album that was so unsuccessful? I think the most important thing about The Elder is that it's not been given a fair you know fair deal by the band throughout the years it's been denigrated it's been you know shrugged off it's been called all sorts of things a mistake the right album but at the wrong time the wrong album by the right band you know a great album but not a great kiss album you know we've had heard all of these excuses well we wanted to cut through all of the kind of politically correct comments that the band have made and have tried to incorporate into their own revisionist uh, you know history and go to the people who were involved with them at the time and really find out why it exists why it was created what was going on with the band that would make them do something so odd so different and and it's easy to write about a successful album it's you know it, it's successful on its own you can 
celebrate it much more easily than trying to find out why they did it. You know, we we know with Destroyer that that wasn't initially a successful album, was it, James? You know, there was a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt when they released it. Um, you know, it was it was in the press at the time that you know they were going back to do a straight rock and roll album immediately afterwards because they were so frightened by what they had actually unleashed and what they'd been through. The Elder has just been swept under the carpet. So we want to uncover that information. We want to dig it up. We want to really get in there without going through the uh, the political machine that is Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley for their opinions, because I don't think they respect their own work enough, and we wanted to give it its time in the sunlight to to really let it grow and let the fans maybe reappraise it from a different perspective. That was a nice monologue. That was very nice. It's very nice introduction. Yeah. Great answer. Very good. You talk about the band sweeping it under the rug and, you know, not giving it any kind of fair treatment and acting like it never happened, basically. And you talk about Gene and Paul, you know, the majority of this book, the bulk of this book is interviews with people who are involved with the band around the making of the album. There is not an interview with Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley in this. And for good reason, in my opinion, because you know what you're going to get. They've they've made their comments in their autobiographies. They've made their statements about what they how they feel it was a mistake, how they feel it's a great album but not a great Kiss album, and the the usual standard Gene and Paul answers. You like I like to call them. You know what you're going to get if you were if if you were granted an interview with Gene and Paul for this book. You know exactly the comments you would have gotten. They wouldn't have given you any kind of dirt on it. They would have given you the same lines that we always get about the album. Um, but the book itself is incredible. And the book starts off with the introduction to the album that's basically from the from the album focus to give you some background on the album. And it goes straight in. And one of the cool things in there is that right after you get the the uh, album focus of it, you go on, there's a timeline from October of 1980 through July of 1982, chronologically listing events that occurred around the album, its making and its release, where they were recording, what was going on with the band at the time, how Ace just all of a sudden goes on vacation while they're recording the album. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you know, I learned just from reading that by itself, I learned a lot. And that was before I even got to the interview section of the book. Yeah, that's the whole. That's the whole idea of those sections, and you know, um, for for some of the negative kind of reviews, they kind of hinge around the refocused. Obviously, that's my narrative writing, uh, you know, purely on me. So, for anyone who wants to criticize, you know, that aspect of the book, right here, yeah, you know, not Tim and his interviews, you know, and those sections. But it was very important to set the stage. You know, they were coming off a hugely successful at least in terms of PR and bombast, you know, the Australian tour. I mean, that was really something of a high point, but also a little bit of a a false, you know, sort of uh, situation for them. So they were coming off that. We wanted to really set the stage at what they were coming from into the project and through to the end of the album cycle. So that's, you know, why we cover basically October 80 through July 1982. 
Where did you get the uh, chronology? How did you come about gathering that type of information? So that's built from a lot of Orcoin memos, um, you know, a, a lot of stuff sent around the office. So some of the recording dates in there were, you know, simply scheduled, not necessarily used. Um, there's a certain amount of flexibility in the actual recording process. So, I mean, you, you've got memos that are, you know, Bill's going to be going to L.A. this week to meet with Fox merchandising and whatnot. And you start building up a picture of where people are. You know, Gene and Eric are flying to Vienna this week, and you, you know that happened, so you're pretty sure about who's where who's who's wherever and and for me you know that was one of the more interesting aspects of researching because number one coming up with the memos finding them you know they, they come from a variety of sources and, and some came very late in the process they came well after um, you know we'd actually done this in I think November 2012 on the website they came early this year uh, a lot of the memos so you know that's how we build up the chronology so you know, a variety of sources. So from there, the book goes into interviews, and there are <laughs> numerous. I, I I don't have a I don't have a count, but there are numerous interviews with a multitude of people involved with the band and the process of the album being made. Um, Dennis Woolock with art direction. David Spindle, photographer. Corky Stanzik, engineer. Spaziak. Yeah. Spaziak, thank you. I knew I'd screw up something. <laughs> I talked to him before we, we started. We love Cork, so we <laughs> want to get him right. <laughs> You've learned something new tonight already, Lottie. I, and I've already learned something new tonight. I feel like we should be in church. <laughs> Everyone turn to page 245 now. <laughs> <laughs> so go on. <laughs> and Chris... Make make pace make peace. Is that right, Julian? Or correct me, Christopher. Make peace, yeah. And of course, Bob Ezrin were some of the standouts in the interviews to me. Now, so for me, Chris's interview was one of the most interesting. Um, I didn't know that there was to be spoken word in between the tracks, telling the story of the elder as the album went. And the book really details a lot about that process, and I didn't know anything about that. Was, am, am I alone on the panel that didn't know it? That didn't know that, or, or is that just common knowledge among you guys? Uh, it wasn't for me. I, I wanted to go back to, in deference to this question too. I wanted to go back to what you asked Julian about the why the elder. Right. And that is a perfect example. There is so much mystery around this record. If you go on the Internet, it's the one it's the reaction that people get if the kiss plays two notes on their cruise or an acoustic yep. show. It's it's the Absolutely. because of what you just said, Lonnie, the question you asked, it, it all kind of comes together. That's why I was asked. It was funny when Julian was working on this. He was nice enough to tell me he was working on it. He, he interviewed me for for the podcast and we, we kept in touch. And I had been asked by a German magazine called Rocks to do a piece on the period, this period of Kiss, 8081, and they wanted me to do Unmasked and The Elder. And I really didn't know much about Unmasked, and I kind of felt like that there was a weird kind of transition there. But The Elder had so much density to it. Plus, you know, I talked to Bob about it in, in the post-interviews for Destroyer. I talked to Dennis Wallach, Corky, a lot of guys who had something to do with it. So I had some people on record already, so it was easier for me to do the piece. But I remember sending it to Julianne, and he gave me a couple of of corrections and different things with it but 
we both were marveling at the fact that people are still in, in Germany <laughs> interested in the elder. And it's eminently interesting in that sense where people don't get it. They, everything about it is mystery. I think a book absolutely, and all these interviews had to be done to get to the bottom of it. And one of the things is what I learned, which was the taped interviews that they were going to do. And then I, I went back and asked Bob after I read it in your book, Julie. I, I sent him a couple of emails to Bob because we've kept in touch. And he said, oh, yeah, this was going to be a double album. This was going to be a play, a film. We were going to do this like Welcome to My Nightmare, Alice Cooper. There was going to be a dramatic thing done, done to uh, the tour. Everything was supposed to be fit together. But the beauty of this book is that you could see it falling apart. You could see Kiss deciding what they're going to do for the rest of their careers. And as much as Julian said before, this is like Destroyer in many ways. Destroyer, at least, the band was on this trajectory. <laughs> yeah, big difference. <laughs> this, it's very odd. There's a lot of similarity, Down. but they went, they, they, they were going like this, but they didn't realize it because they hired Bob to save their career, their audio career, because their albums weren't selling. They were selling concerts and becoming famous, but they weren't selling records. And in this case, they were already huge, but they were losing it. And so they went to Bob to get it back. And that's where things went awry. But but getting back to the, I just wanted to throw that in with the interviews. I learned that completely, and then I followed up and asked some questions of my own. And those guys, Tim and Tim, they kicked it because that's a huge part of what this was supposed to be. This was supposed to be a huge rollout, mm -hmm. but it started to lose momentum even as the record was being recorded. It's it's a fascinating. Story. It had to be written. It really did. Yeah, and again, it, it's Kiss following a trend. They wanted the success of the wall. That's what they were shooting for. Right. And it it I remember buying the album <clears throat> and James, I'm glad you brought up Unmasked because I really dislike Unmasked. Um I listen to it now and I can appreciate it, but back in the time I was like, This is awful. I, I put it up there with cra the way I felt about Crazy Nights later. And then when I bought the Elder, just by chance, I you know, I didn't even know the album was really coming out. I just looked in the Kiss bin, I saw this odd brown album cover. <laughs> and I put it on, and, um, you know, I hit with the American version, the first song was The Oath. So I was like, all right, they're back. This is awesome. <clears throat> and then they go in the fanfare and Just the Boy, and I was like, oh, okay. My God. <laughs> I was still happy the album wasn't unmasked. So I wasn't really hating on the uh on the elder so much uh there were some pretty good songs like mr blackwell's really good song um it it's a good kiss album it's not I, I don't like that phrase it's it's a good album it's just not a good kiss album i consider it a good kiss album and then when they t the friday's appearance which we talk about it and, and again you you interview Mary Lee, uh, melanie chartoff from uh the friday show that Friday's concert was great. They kicked ass yeah. with Ace playing the leads on the oath and everything. But, um, yeah, I, that's the way I felt about The Elder. But, um, again, it, it, it's a great book in a great period of uh, history that, for some reason, they're embarrassed by it. But, um, yeah, it's, James, you're 100% correct. When you know when they, when they pull out a song on the cruise, the, the crowd goes crazy. And I know, Lonnie, a couple weeks ago you said you regretted the one cruise you missed, they played the oath. You listen to the and, show. Yeah, no, I totally agree. <laughs> I would love, I, I would love to see uh, a couple of these songs being played live. Yeah, yeah, no question. That's that's the thing. The Kiss fan. See, I, I wanted to ask you guys this because I was just curious. Uh, 
when he Joe just brought up my experience of getting that record for the first time, I had been off the Kiss bandwagon for a couple of albums, and my brother got it for me for Christmas. Came out came around Christmas, right, Julian? Yeah, this November. Mm-hmm. It was November. Yeah, and I I said what what. I was more intrigued by it because I had kind of given up the kiss doing anything creative again. And I really liked it when I first heard it. And, and it's funny because I was looking at the album today. I listened to the whole thing before it went on with you guys. And I noticed that the original, my original American version, and I've got it here. I was going to bring it out later. But it has fanfare, just a boy, Odyssey, only you, under the rose in the back. But it, it does start with, with the oath. So similar. I, that, that's what made me even more intrigued as well. Uh, when I first got it as a, uh, I guess I was 19 at the time. So I, like I said, I was pretty much 18 or something. I was off the bandwagon of, of Kiss by that point. So I was intrigued by the record even when it first came out. You guys mentioned track listing, and that's that's one of the most intriguing. Th- that's one of the more intriguing things about the album is the final track listing that was released, as opposed to the track listing as it was originally intended. And they talk about that in. There's various references to that in the book. It talks about how you guys talk about second-guessing themselves. Kiss was already, and the record company, both were already second-guessing themselves before the album even came out by rearranging the tracks and putting the oath first. first because we can't have this classical piece fanfare open up the album. You know, it, it needs to be the oath. It needs to be the, the kick-in-the-ass song to open up an album, especially at the time, because there was, you know, it wasn't MP3s. It was putting a record on, and that was the first piece of music you were going to hear. It was very important for the... Uh, an opening track was very important at the time, and they weren't about to open it up with fanfare and then just a boy. The, they, the record company you know, freaked out when they when they were previewed it. So that's that's a very important thing about um, second-guessing the album before it, even was, before it was even released. So going back to the book, how did you determine what people you would interview because some of these interviews just blew my mind. I'm like, I'm a huge King's X fan. And the fact that Ty Tabor's in, interview just was like icing on the cake. And then you, you pick Chuck Klosterman, who is obviously a huge <laughs> fan, but I mean, the, 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 the uh, array of guests that you interview in the book is just astounding. And I, how did you come about who, who are you going to talk to about this in this book? You, you know, the original interviews were all by by Tim, and again, this was his vision, you know, who he wanted to talk to. Now, you have to remember that Tim speaks the language of music. So when you think about a, you know, a, a concept album that's progressive, I think King's X and Ty really just sells itself to, you know, talking about that sort of material with that sort of musician, rather than, you know, I wanted to go after some of the guys in Anthrax. You know that that's the difference between Tim and myself. Uh, you know, he'll uh, think of King's X, I'll think of Anthrax. So you know, it it kind of makes more sense with that. Who who do we talk to? Well, number one, you start with the album credits. You know, you go through everyone there and see who is still around, who is willing to talk, um, whose interviews actually come out. You know, there there are, are things that aren't always included in the final product because they just don't really work themselves into it. They don't come across well. So you then think about, well, who else do we want to talk to? Okay, so who's at the record label at that time? And you start building up a list and you start talking to people and you're talking to people and they're giving you names. 
they're often in in passing reference mentioning someone. And you're like, oh yeah, I I know the I know how that relates to Casablanca. You know, and someone like um, like Chip really falls into that category that I personally would never ever ever have thought of talking to him about the elder because i only know him in relation to ace's solo career later on not going back to phonogram polygram so it the list kind of it's it's organic it grows you know you and you reach out to people and sometimes they're willing to talk but you're never able to sync up sometimes they're unwilling to talk and sometimes they facilitate. They, they they lead you on a little bit, and you' pretty sure that they're texting Gene and Paul and finding out. You know, or can I talk? Um, you know, because because this is business as well. There are some people who are, um, shall we say, protective, still to this day of the band's um, legacy. I think and mystique, and they they still feel under an obligation to mask those things for want of a better phrase or term um so it the list builds itself and everything that came after the original novelder was like what gaps do we think that we have in this work where are the people who we need to flesh out the story it was great for a web feature but we think it can be a good book something that you know if the website gets blown up that you still have a record of all this work so you know, there are a few people still. There are always more people that you want to talk to. That's just the nature of the game. It's never done. History is never set. You know, it's 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 evolving. You know, uh, you know, there, there's a ton of people I'd still love to talk to. Yeah, I'm. I'm sure there is the the list of of people interviewed is is compelling. That how many the variety of people that that are spoken to um, and. The, you know, I mean, come on, now. come on. He got the guy who made the bloody door, the model of yeah. the door. Yeah, that, I that's mean, freaking. Come on, Tim got the door maker. I mean, and that's a great story because Dennis well, told me that story when I did the article. It's a fantastic story. It really is. It's absolutely. I, I mean, this is me geeking out as well. I mean, I know I've done a lot of books and published a lot of stuff over the years. So you would think that this is all just by the by. It's another book. It's product. It's not. It, this is for personal satisfaction that I'm learning things that I'm reading firsthand from the people who were there, who were doing stuff. I'm learning. It's about my knowledge. If other people happen to hop on the same bus with me and get the same kick out of reading about the guy who built the freaking elder door, then, you know, I'm 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 just tickled because I just find that so unbelievably cool. Yeah. It's 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 amazing the details that are that are in here and what you guys have uncovered about this era of the band because you guys have mentioned it that this era these the years that we're talking about here like october of 80 through july of 1982 are some of the least documented years of the band that nobody really knows a whole lot about it It just it's really just kind of vague one because the band glosses over it in anything they ever do you know and and there's just there's just it's it's just not documented like the er, even like the early years are or the later years are it's it's just very glossed over in everything and the information just wasn't out there until julian and, yeah. and tim put this together and it, it's 
it's really re- remarkable. Go ahead, James. It really is true because that's why I said it before. You you use the perfect term glossed over, and then of course Julian used the term um, mass because the band just didn't want you to. They're so much in control of the information. When you write about Kiss, there's something always pushing back. You could tell it. You could feel it. And you know some people are protective of how they say things, certain things. I had people calling me back after I did the interviews before the book came out and said, what did I say about Paul again? Read it back to me because I'm really – seriously. And not that they fear anything's going to happen to them, but they don't want to lose that connection. They really love the guys. And Kiss is very protective. And that is so true. There is very little – because, let's face it, they were kicking Peter out of the band. Ace wanted to leave the band for about a year and a half. They didn't know what they were going to do. They were treating Eric Clark Carr basically as a hired hand. He had no say in any, anything that went on in The Elder. And Ezra was coked up out of his mind, told me he was completely shot mentally coming out of the wall, as Joe said. I mean, he was just fried. And he was coming up with all the ideas. Think about it. And then, you know, coming out of that, they run and do Creatures. They put Ace on the cover, and he's not even on the album. There's so much going on during that period that mm-hmm. they're very protective of. And I think this book really does shed a great light. I, you know what I learned? The biggest thing, and I put it in my review, the biggest thing I learned was they were ready to take the makeup off now. Yes. That's yeah. why they're not on the cover of that that. Uh, that um, album they were ready to do it and and at the last minute they panicked and just what you guys were saying they didn't panic when they put three minutes of no music at the beginning of destroyer but a few seconds of a fanfare they throw it in the middle of the first side so you don't know what the hell's going on if they spent all this time with a plot it just goes to show you what was good the paranoia that was seeping into the band and the protectiveness and that's why we don't know anything about this period until this book i think i Sorry, I'm I'm going to interrupt you there. I I think Ida Langsam gives a great interview that really sets the stage for we're taking the makeup off. We're not taking it off. We're taking the makeup off. We're what they they don't know. They're flip flopping. They're they're just all over the place. They're panicking. And I think the other thing that really comes out of the era is how they didn't want to record an album. They did not. They were not in any place. Any you know, any creative kind of place to be making a follow-up to Unmasked, but the pressure of Phonogram to have something follow up what was essentially a successful album overseas, that that's why Bob Ezrin's in the picture, because he's the only one who they could bring in, just like he had done in 1976. Uh, he really juiced them up creatively. He had, he brought all the best attributes out of them individually. That, that was, again, the play that he's brought in to be the savior. I mean, the only way Kiss is going to record an album in 1981 to give Phonogram product is with Bob Ezrin. Simple as that. And, you know, Bob, you know, read his section in the book. I mean, he addresses everyone directly about his state of mind, where he was at, you know, and the things going on in his life. It, you know, it was kind of like a perfect storm for him that... Uh, it wasn't the best time for any of these people to be making an album, and no wonder they grasped on the concept that they did. And, and I'm glad they did, because, come on, I, there's plenty of really good music on there. Yeah, yeah. agreed. agreed. There, there is plenty of good music on there, and it gets labeled as being a trash album. But, you know, Kiss did return to their roots in a, in a way, because the album is much heavier than Unmasked was. They, it, gets, it gets labeled as, oh, it's a concept album, it's trash, but it, it is very heavy. The Oath is very heavy. I is heavy. Mr. Blackwell is a heavy out, is, are all heavy songs. So it, it is Kiss 
returning with a heavy album like they originally wanted to, but it just turned out to be a concept album and people not in their right frame of minds. But you talk, James, you brought up the unmasked thing, and that that intrigued me as well. I I didn't know that they were ready to unmask in 1980, and that they were seriously contemplating it. You know, and, and we've seen the the footage of of Gene um, auditioning for a TV show at the time. Grotus. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 I always thought in the back of my mind, well, how could Gene have done that? Because they were still wearing the makeup. But come to find out, they were ready to take off the makeup. So Gene's already thinking, well, if we take if we take off the makeup, I can start branching out and doing other things. I mean, the the seeds were already planted in Gene's mind that if we take off the makeup, I can start doing other things and and exploring my other options. So yeah. I found that very intriguing. Go ahead, Joe. If I could play uh, Father Joe right now, and tur- everyone turn to page 417. Um, <laughs> not, we're not going to chant together, are we? It's the, uh, it's the year in rock, 1981, and, and I think this really lays the groundwork of where KISS was at, especially where when I was growing up in 1981. The albums that you mention in there are the yes. albums that yes. everybody listened to, including myself, but... Most of my friends and kid guys I went to school with, they listened to Rush Moving Pictures, Judas Priest, Van Halen, Iron Maiden Killers was huge in the underground scene. Uh, Foreigner 4 was huge with the girls, and so was Journey Escape. Def Leppard High and Dry was just totally kick-ass. The cool guys listened to Tattoo You. Um, Black Sabbath Mob Rules was the big... It, it was I, I actually like that better than Heaven and Hell. So, you know... The, oh, yeah. the, the hard rock, heavy metal community, and even the rock, the 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 the, uh, the female rock our, uh, our fan base, they were listening. There was a lot of great music coming out in 1981, and Kiss was no longer there. So you know they they bottomed out in uh, in the United States, and they went to make a concept album to try to uh, get back into it. And um, it's interesting because it brings you back to that Friday's episode where when they're introduced, they have that older elderly couple and they they interview them and they ask them, you know, and she says, I would much rather uh, see see kiss than sticks or or, uh, journey or whatever. Um, Yeah, but but I think that's once again, it's it's more icing on the cake at the end of the book where you talk about music that was released that year Mm -hmm. and. You know, as good as as much as I like the Elder, and obviously Kiss is my favorite all time band. These albums just blew Kiss out of the water, and and that's what Great. guys yeah. were getting into. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, and and you you mentioned Def Leppard, Black Sabbath. Ozzy released Diary of a Madman that year. Motley Crue released Too Fast for Love. ACDC right. for those about to rock. These bands were doing great, great things with major successful albums that are but also, that are you know standards. What? Also, you guys are just doing about the hard rock, and that's why I love that Julian put those chapters in. And great point, Joe, because in my piece that I wrote about The Elder, I talked a little bit about the advent of MTV, the new romantic period, the new wave period that was really rocking, the Joe Jacksons and the Elvis Costellos, the Blondies that had huge hits that were dominating MTV and rock radio at the time, and then complete shift in boy bands like Duran Duran. None of this stuff 
was anything Kiss was doing. And every album that you just named, Joe, that were in the hard rock kind of pantheon, like Moving Pictures and stuff, all those albums, even though I'm not a fan of Journey or something, they are superior albums to The Elder. So that's where The Elder kind of gets glossed over and crushed, even though in, I believe, in the canon of Kiss, in their catalog, I think it's an exceptional album because me personally, I'm, Julian, I've, I've talked about this, we talked about this, Lonnie, when we did the Destroyer 40th anniversary, that I'm just a fan of Ezrin's work with Kiss. And when Kiss does something that's fantastical, cinematic, and gives their image a punch, I believe that's when they're the most successful. That's why I always argue that I'm less inclined to like something like Rock and Roll Over, even though I like a lot of songs on there. Everyone always says that's a superior album to Destroyer. I just think it misses the mark because it doesn't perpetuate the myths that Kiss has built just by their makeup and everything else, their shows. And I think The Elder does keep that going. So in the Kiss catalog, as opposed to where music was at the time, I think Kiss really did the best that they could with this. And, and that's where I think it's given the short trip, this record. Yeah, you, you line up The Elder with all those albums that we mentioned that came out in 1981. And, you know, that, that list was built by predominantly by Tim, but, you know, with input by me, obviously. Um, how many of those bands had been actively going, you know, as, as popular concerns since 1973 in 1981? Motley Crue, obviously, you immediately discount because that's their debut. You know, Def Leppard, you know, I would like to say that that's their debut because, you know, on through the night, <laughs> crap. But uh, in comparison. Um, Shut it on through the night. <laughs> so you really have to compare them with their contemporaries to really give them a fair shake. And Alice Cooper, circa 1981, put his. He was out. doing some pretty wild stuff too. Uh, yeah, he was, he, he yeah. was off in the hinterland as well. He'd he he'd gone off the reservation for want of a better term. Um, you know, Rush obviously same year, but they hadn't had any near you know level of success that Kiss had. They were riding their slow kind of rise. You know, they didn't shoot up like Kiss had with Destroyer and Alive. Um, Aerosmith, where are they in this? Well, in the studio, aren't they? You know, rocking a hard place. They're working on that. You know, and they they've fallen apart. So, right. you know, no Joe Perry. Yeah, you, you can't. They're, they're in transition as well. It's unfair right. in some ways to put the elder next to Diary of a Madman. It's unfair to put the elder next to Excellent point. For Those About to Rock. You know, ACDC had only blown up once Bon Scott died. I mean, different bands in different places. Yeah. So, you know, those are just there as a reference. I mean, I, I find them interesting because every single one of those albums that we mention are in my collection and they are in my playlist because that's the sort of music I like. And it, it's just incredible of what a year 1981 actually was musically. So, well, that, and then that you being the said, you bring up uh, um, High and Dry. Uh, you mentioned that there was a possibility of Mutt Lang producing yep. Kiss. But they, there was no way they wanted to fly to England. What I believe that that would have been something incredible because Mutt Lang just seems to pull the best out of any musical artist that he works with, and that's something I really would have liked to have seen. That one is really a lost opportunity, as far as I'm concerned. Kiss working with him, but I, I, I kind of on one hand dread to think what he would have done with them if you think about what he did with ACDC what he did with you know Def Leppard he completely changed those bands from what they were he reinvented them he, um, yeah he did a, a lot to help them and High and Dry is one of the most perfect metal albums ever created in my opinion 
Back in Black is one of the most perfect albums. You know, Highway to Hell. Also, you know, what would he have done to Kiss? And would they have allowed anyone other than Bob Ezrin to, number one, write with them, arrange with them, rearrange with them, and shit can bad ideas? You know, so yeah. I, I really think that again, Bob, we come back to Bob in this in this Especially question at that point in their career. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because these guys are hypersensitive at this point. You know, they need someone who knows them, so they need someone who's creative. Eddie Kramer doesn't rearrange and write their music with them. He doesn't sing solos to their guitarists. He doesn't have a you know, a back pocket full of ghost players on speed dial in 1981. I mean, if he needs someone to play a crumb horn on a Kiss album, you know, he's... <laughs> he's he, First of he, all, it's not going to happen. You know, he, he, you know, Bob knows who to go to. You know, if, right. he, if he needs a guitarist to play a certain piece a, per, a certain way, he knows who to go to. So that's the massive difference I, I see there with, uh, you know, some of the other production toys, choices. I mean, Martin Birch has also been mentioned as uh, someone, you know, th- th- they were fishing around for ideas and some people were coming to them f- um, looking to produce the next Kiss album. But again, it, uh, goes, it goes back to my early statement that they didn't want to record anyway and Bob was the only one who could get them to do anything. Yeah, I just want to throw in that uh, you just sparked something and I was thinking about it myself is that, I believe that Paul and Gene, I know that they did because they mentioned it in their memoirs and Bob told me themselves that they got along with Bob as if they were cousins. Uh, Bob refers to them as his cousins a couple of times in my book. And I think Gene and Paul would have stayed with Bob, which Bob was fully expecting to be Kiss's producer like he worked with Alice Cooper. And then the backlash, as you mentioned, before the album did take off, did very well, then Dove and then Beth, which Bob facilitated uh made it but i think what happened was i know what happened was paul and gene to placate for lack of a better term as you would say julian to placate ace and peter they went to eddie kramer that's who ace and peter wanted to produce the next record after alive who had worked on the alive tapes as we know and then after a couple of albums with eddie kramer they go to Vinnie Poncia. Why? Because they wanted to placate Peter Chris because he produced, you know, his his solo album. So I think it got to be to the point where Gene and Paul were like, "Screw this! We're going to do it our way right now." And then kind of took over, which Ace totally agrees with because he had nobody anymore because Peter left to defend him in any of the meetings, business or musical wise. And then, as you guys mentioned, totally went AWOL again, as he did for most of Destroyer. And then. Um, so Gene and Paul pretty much and Bob ran the show and it was Bob that gave them the power to do that. I think that's what happened. They they placated the other two guys and then they said, We're taking over now. Absolutely. And, and it's a business a decision. Point. Again, you know, the memos outline it for you and you know, I haven't shared any of the, the full memos right. yet. You know, it's Bob Ezrin, name recognition, the wall. You know, come on, it, it doesn't get any more complex than that, you know other than the the things that you've just touched on they're they're recruiting Ezrin not only because they need him to make them do the work and they trust him but because he's just had a massively successful album in yes. the wall they're tailcoating yes. they're absolutely Correct. wanting or they're hoping to tailcoat onto the success Pink Floyd had had simple as that they needed it they needed him far more than he needed yeah. them and it was an opportunity and they wanted to be a double album just like the wall even 
Oh, okay. that extent. Film, yeah, war, with war a film. Of the gods. Yeah, with a yeah. film. I mean, Everything. how much? How how many more parallel lines can you draw? <laughs> it's so, and I loved also Tim and, and Julian's parallel paralleling with Destroyer because that was my level of expertise. I spent so much time with it, but the fact that you have ballads on there, strings, storyline, uh, Ace being substituted, uh, you know, the drummer kind of being forced to do things he wasn't ever able to do uh, replaced on a couple of tracks although peter does play on everything on destroyer so the parallels are fascinating but unlike beth world without heroes is not a big hit because kiss is not going here they're going there and so uh, is the music business is leaving them it wasn't know? that moment in in history it, it wasn't planned beth was it it was not planned to be the hit that it was it makes a world without heroes so utterly transparent and contrived as the single from the album that they are trying to do the same thing in 1976 uh, that they'd done in 1976 and 1981 well beth was a hit that's because it was just one of those magical moments that you can't and it's a better song and it's a better song yeah but i love world without heroes let's not give that you know i feel badly it's like when you do the lebron james versus uh michael jordan thing if you pick one you're ripping the other i think world without heroes is a great song i really do i like that song a lot what james i've heard you bring up his name and and the possibly the biggest um impactful event that happened as a result of this period was ace freely leaving the band and if you just look at history, he leaves the band apparently because of his dissatisfaction with making this album, which in turn, uh, 15 or whatever, how many years later, will lead to the reunion where they get fall become the most popular band in the world again. So I wanted to ask you guys, do you really think this was the last straw for Ace or were there other factors playing into it? Because when I read it, you know, you read... They had some good, uh, they had some good uh, recording sessions at Ace in the Hall, but then they they started doing things in New York because they didn't want to make the commute. Then all of a sudden, it's up with Bob Ezrin. Um, I'm of the opinion that Ace was so messed up and kind of half into it anyway. I don't. I think he uses this as an excuse. I think Ace was done anyway. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 I want you to walk that back a little bit, Lonnie. I think he's mm-hmm. certainly near the end. But he was invested in this project. He was in Toronto. Let's make that very clear. Sure. He went to Ezrin Farms and worked. Simple as that. He was not just FedExing tapes. He was actively working on the album with them at times. So I, th- I think it's a very clear distinction that needs to be made that we hear the myth that Ace stayed in Connecticut. Ace did not participate on this album as much as he could. Uh, Ace had material recorded that wasn't used. That's certainly true. Uh, simple as that. But he was as invested in the project at times that he fully committed and traveled and performed and let's let's make it very clear he was a mess he was falling off chairs drunk you know right there's there's no skirting that so it's a little bit of a myth that's been blown out of proportion that he he wasn't an active participant but he was at the end of his tether with this band without a doubt yeah i even uh, i'm i'm an ace freely fan to a fault and uh i feel that dark light is actually kind of one of the weaker tracks on the album um as much as i love ace it's like uh 
it's like a messed up weak cold gin in a way uh, it has kind of the same core possessions but someone that's not really into it and i know it used to be called i heard the demo don't run and i don't know it it, it falls flat for me it's one of my one of the most disappointing tracks i believe that ace freely has ever written for the band or even outside of the band so um i, I think that's evidence right there that he was he was he i think he wanted out and he used this as, as an excuse more than you know damn it i'm not doing the elder i'm out of here well i i interviewed ace in march for the new record uh, i went visited him in new york city he was staying at a hotel in midtown and um you know, I just asked him about when he was done, like with the first, you know, the the first leg. And the only thing he told me was, it's when I was totally outvoted. I knew I did not ever have a place in the band anymore. When Peter is gone, it was two mm-hmm. against one. We oh, Peter and I talked incessantly. Hayes told me about the fact that if we don't stand up and do, they're going to take us in different directions. We don't want to be. And I think even without interviewing Ace, what became glaringly apparent to me in my research for Destroyer is that Ace was petrified of Bob Ezrin. Bob said it wasn't about playing cards, just like Julian just said, all the apocryphal stories about about Ace in, in The Elder are all there in Destroyer. He wasn't playing cards or he didn't have time or disappeared or was drunk or, I mean, a lot of that stuff does happen, but the real key was, and Bob said it, Ace just did not feel comfortable around Bob because Bob replaced guitar players. Bob was not going to wait for Ace to come up with a cool, interesting lead after like 15 hours. He needed to get stuff done. He had everything charted out. And the two of those guys just don't work well together. When you combine a guy who basically felt like he had no power in the band anymore, he was doing a project that he didn't really believe in and that he was petrified of of the producer. I don't know. I just think it is the final nail in the call. Yeah, and you get into the psychology of a musician as well. You know, that Ace lacked confidence. You, you know, the alcohol and drugs were a crutch for him creatively. You know, and going up against someone like Bob Ezrin, I mean, I, I, I can't fathom that as a musician because I would never be at that level. But what he must have felt, you know, he's not a binky. You know, he can't just cut a binky Phillips, you know, solo on command. I mean... Sometimes he can, sometimes he can't. You know, he doesn't know where he is as a musician sometimes. You know, and and the interviews with him about, you know, the elder phase, I mean, they're just a sad one for him. I mean, now that he recalls more, um, Eddie Trunk recently spoke with him and, you know, started off talking about the elder. And you just hear a sadness in his voice, really, that the band that he had been a part of now, He's not a part gone. of. It's gone right. because Peter's not there, you know. So maybe the elders all Peter' fault, you know, because he's no longer there. He's shifted the balance that Gene and Paul can essentially run Ramshot over Ace, who's now expected just to show up and be the guitarist, while the decisions are kind of made by two people with a very similar outlook creatively and artistically. So right. very, he very was sad. replaced in Destroyer. He was replaced. Remember that. Right. Ace's complaints about how he was treated in Destroyer are absolutely apt. Mm-hmm. Whether he disappeared and, and they had to replace him. But he felt disrespected by Paul and Gene. And the very fact that they picked Bob again was a smack in, in Ace's face. In his estimation. And again, in my interview with him, he told me, my leads are all feel. I sit down. I got nothing. He goes, I used to bring leads already done, and I'd come to the studio, and they would they didn't like them. 
So I said, get out of the studio. I'm going to spend an hour, and I'm going to get something cool. And they'd come back, and they loved it. So that's Ace, and that's not the way Bob works. And like I said, Gene and Paul were all in on Bob, and to Ace was left out of the equation, period. And, and I think that's the final play. And, and Bob's the sort of guy who'll sing you the solo, right? As he did mm-hmm. for, <laughs> yep. You know. which, which Ace still still says that the greatest solo in history is uh, Detroit Rock City, and he goes, I have nothing to do with it. But, I mean, that that's the beauty of Ace. He realizes after the fact the greatness of certain things, but that's why I love Ace. He's one of the more honest guys, painfully honest guys. And I think, I didn't hear that interview with Eddie, but I guarantee you, I'm sure he was, his sadness probably comes true through because he was very, very, his band was going away. Those guys, Gene and Paul always said that Ace didn't care about the band because he acted wasted and showed up late for shit. And that's true. But Ace loved that band. He designed the logo. He, you know, he he worked his butt off just like everybody else, you know, and he felt disrespected and lost and was, you know, basically felt like he was being thrown out of his own band before he was even even left. Getting back to Dark Light, though, I, I think it's an abomination on the album, uh, to be frank. And, and, and this is, you wow. know... Uh, this is this is just personal taste, you know. There's no evidence, there's no formula or equation. If if you listen to what he originally had, I thought that's stylistically cool with "Don't Run." You know, yeah, it's not fleshed out. That you know, sorry, Ace, but that needs Bob Ezrin's hand. It did not need Lou Reed's hand shoehorning it into the concept. It didn't have enough going for it, in, in my opinion. As, as a song to really fit in with the story, and it's just so forced, so contrived. Dark light. That is just that phrase is just so Lou Reed, and yeah. and to yeah. me it, it doesn't work. It it it's nowhere near as good as you know Lou's best work. And you know that's one of the people who's really missing from the book is Lou. And I was working on trying to connect with him and get an interview or at least some questions to him for it, but unfortunately at the time. He was dying, and he passed on, and, you know, we'll never get that story. And, you know, that that's one of my, you know, Ace may have no regrets. Well, I've got I've got a few <laughs> regrets, but, yeah. you know, in, in relation to this book, you know, not getting Lou and getting kind of his side of things where we've heard third parties to, in reference to Lou, um, you know, is really one area that's a, that's a major gap. And it's interesting that... <laughs> Gene Simmons would, you know, Mr. Anti-Drug and Alcohol worked with one of the heroin addicts of all time. That's uh, <laughs> who wrote songs about it. Yeah, exactly. And performed it on stage. Yes. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Julian, so, you, you, mentioned, oh, you mentioned Lou and not getting him for the book. <laughs> what other what other interviews did you want for the book that that, that eluded you guys? You know, I, I would love to name names, but I really wouldn't think it would be fair to uh, give those folks names who declined to be interviewed other than Gene and Paul, who by default, you know, weren't included. I had a, a great deal of interest in sitting down with either Gene and Paul simultaneously and you know my my big vision was uh you know it was part of a big play to try and get them on on record was to force them to reevaluate the work um as objectively as we could looking back 35 years at the time hoping that now that both of them had written their books and kind of vented a lot of their angst 
about the time to get them to reappraise it so that we could erase some of the words that they had written about it and in talking particularly with Ken Sharp um, in you know the official books and gold mine interviews so uh, I, I the only names I will name are you know Gene Paul and Ace Ace I, I, I never did reach out to um, you know it, it just didn't make sense I think it makes more sense to have the third parties uh, the people who were part of the projects really either buttress some of the things that Paul and Jean have said over the years or give you a different, you know, perspective to consider what Jean and Paul have said. So you get to make the decision yourself about the things Jean and Paul have said and go against their comments with those people who were around the project who are maybe less emotionally invested in it because it was business it was work it was their job i'm an engineer i'm paid to do this task i'm a songwriter brought in to do this task so i've got a page full of people who i'd love to talk to them i'm sure i'm sure you do <laughs> um well the, the book talk has the majority of the interviews but then there's some sections after the interviews that kind of tie everything together um there's some reviews from the album some quotes from the band and the um talks about the um, the band trying to change its image. Talk about um, wanting to take the makeup off. One of my favorite quotes is on page 385 from Dick Hogan's from the Cedar Rapids Gazette from December 11th, 1981. And the last paragraph reads: Regardless, I still have to give the band credit for trying to change its image, but it's hard to take anything very seriously from four grown men with painted faces and weird costumes. And there's no indication in the band's pub publicity that they've changed that part of their act. That's totally unfair. That it's, is totally that is unfair. The, that is one of my Pile favorite passages in the whole book. Wait, but how is that? Well, first I it's totally unfair, but it's just like perception. I love it. But here's the thing. I mean, is Star Wars... Uh, an adult, I mean, it's, this is their Star Wars, man. If anything, there's many parallels to um, to the uh, to the concept of Star Wars in there. The young kid who's taken under the wing of the Elder and trying to fight the Darth Vader, Darth Vader character. I, I mean, this thing reeks of people who paint their faces and go up on stage and make our characters. I don't get that at all. That's the thing that drives me crazy about the press's perception of Kiss. It's like, well, they do one thing and they rip them for that. Then they do another thing and they say, well, they're not doing this thing. It's just completely unfair. Great quote, though. Yeah, but so, it, it just proves that Kiss can never win with the critics. It doesn't That's matter what. I mean, they could come out with an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. You know, they could do Hamilton. You know, that quality of stage show or performance or musical. And because they wear the bloody makeup, they won't be taken seriously. Because they once wore it, they won't be taken seriously. No matter what, they're damned in the eyes of certain people who mainly work at Rolling Stone magazine. It's like the people in 1983, after Kiss took off the makeup, oh, well, they can suddenly play their instruments now that they've taken off the makeup and people started taking them a little more seriously. So had they taken off the makeup in 81, would this album have been better received? I I don't think so because there's no pictures of the band whatsoever in the in, in the album. I I just um, there there was no imagery of the band whatsoever. So I don't know how pe how they would actually reach out to people through the album. Um, you know, and I don't know. You know, with 
would they appear on Fridays without the makeup? Would that have boosted the sales? I don't know. I, I, I believe the the lack of band imagery really added to the mystique and hurt the album um, and confused a lot of people as well. Because um, even me, I mean, I, I really, because of Unmasked, I didn't follow too much, but I always looked in the Kiss bin and I found this brown album and I'm like, is this really Kiss? What's going on here? And then I put it on and I heard the oath and I knew it was Paul Stanley's voice. So I don't know how they would really go forward with the taking the makeup off. Obviously, it would be a big PR thing, but um, I, I just don't think it would have been done correctly because of the lack of imagery that is put forth in the album itself. Just uh, imagine if you'd opened up that gatefold. And there they are. And there with they no are. Well, yeah, with with the no makeup? No makeup. Is that Un- Unmasked. Uh, unmasked. Just unmasked ima- inside the gatefold. Just imagine the word of mouth. Stole what Instead, I was say. you open it up and there's a table. Well, <laughs> wow, wow, but, but here's wow. me, if I may, gentlemen, at this point in Kiss's career, as far as the critics are concerned, or people talking about serious as if anything, why, how is the elder serious? It's, it's a fantasy thing played, played by a fantasy band. Look, the toothpaste was already out of the tube. This was a band that had put their face on every toy imaginable for the last three or four years. They had put out a TV movie that at best was crap. <laughs> they had, they had, they had done. They put the four solo albums all at the same time, shipped them platinum on purpose so they can fake out the Billboard. They had done every. The the just the dynasty thing was this massive over the top. Am I missing something? I'm sure you guys are telling me there must be something else that Kiss had done to really put themselves way outside the bounds of serious rock that so the idea that they would put this record out or even take their makeup off or shave their heads or put a completely different band out in front i don't i think it was over already i think they'd already said look we're a band from the that's what i love about kiss we're about the money we're about the power we're about the fame we're about the show and the fans we don't care about serious critics or lyrics or or changing the world or you know what movements or anything so again i, I think it's just unfair to that people say, well, maybe if they'd done this, people would have taken them seriously. I think that ship had long sailed. For yeah, th- thank God for the purple headband. Yeah, and the Chiquita. <laughs> that, that, that kept them from taking them seriously. The yeah, sure. purple pearls. I'm sure they crap from, from Kiss fans, but am I wrong? Did Kiss not completely just totally be something else that would make them... It was hard to come back from all the things I just mentioned. The yeah. toys, they, the kiss, they 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 were they were dead as a doornail in 1981. Yeah. I mean, it would have taken an act of God to make them popular at that point. Oh. And I, and I think they they went as far as they could, you know, at in in going down that path. I mean, all all the wheels are off that bus. Simple as that. Well, what about a kick-ass metal album like Creatures and they go back to the leather and studs instead of doing the elder would that have uh reinvented their career reinvigorated it or would the critics critics still beat them down and and be off or not well i spoke about that on podcast the other day or you know on, on another episode i don't know if it's up yet but could they have made that creatures album without first of hitting their nadir that was the elder did they could they have created that hard rock heavy metal album without first falling so low that they had nowhere else to go other than call it quits or 
climb back up. And I don't well, think I think they had to have the elder in order to I think the elder have the, have creatures. Yes. Simple as that. They had to have the punch in the uh, you know I'm get, I'm not going to mix the metaphors to hell because you know they just had to fail and fall flat and change. You know, and part of that change is Ace leaves. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. Bill Alcoin, another you know he he's the victim. Bob Ezrin, he's a victim here as well. You know, Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley are the last men standing, and they have to decide, does Gene want to be Grotus, you know, and and take that on the larger level? Does he want to be Hollywood? Or does he want to keep Kiss alive, and is he willing to invest himself in it? And James, you're you're chopping at the bit there to, to get in. No, no, I was just going to say that I think you hit it on the head. I mean, to me, um, this your book, if I can plug it again, absolutely underlined it for me. Double underlined it because you, they were making a hard rock record. They were they had tapes. They put it out in the Kiss newsletter or something. They had mm-hmm. sessions and tapes, and Eric Carr was totally digging it. They got a heavy metal rocking you know drummer when they used to have a swing drummer, and they were kicking it, and then all of a sudden – I don't know what happened. At some point, they just decided no. So they needed to go, I think, through this trial by fire and fail miserably with it. I do. Well, would, you, would you say that the elder is seventy percent hard rock, though? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm looking at the track listing to try and do the math. Like yeah. Really I, I don't. I don't think it equates to seventy. Yeah, there there are some heavy songs on there. Okay, but I, I, okay, you've got God of. Th- I'm sorry, Mr. Blackwell. Um, right. <laughs> sorry, James, I had to get that one in there. Um, <laughs> Escape from the Island, which is kind of throwaway, hard rocking. That's fi- a Firehouse. Um, World Without Heroes is definitely not. The Oath is. I is. Um, Only You is certainly not. Dark Light is for what it is. Um, under the Rose, I guess, mm. in a kind of twisted sort of way. It's kind of weird way. Yeah. Oh, can I throw this out? Hmm? I just noticed two things. I made notes before we went on. I don't want to forget to say it to you guys. I want to know what you think. Um, I noticed that only you, I probably should have noticed before, and I are two songs on a Kiss album where Gene and Paul trade vocals, which happened in Shout It Out Loud, right? And maybe one other song or two. That's a rare thing that the two of them did that, right? Yeah, very rare. I mean, it's God gave us the role to you. It was one of the few other ones in the you yes. know in Let the me know. history. And the other thing I noticed was, did you guys ever notice at the beginning of Fanfare? Because I put the thing on uh, Spotify before I can. I had it on cranked because I was wait. It wasn't coming up right away. Fanfare, and I noticed there's a train sound at the beginning of the record in the very background, and mm-hmm. something that sounds like keys or glass. Kind of reminded me of the the, the the plates being washed at the beginning of Destroyer. Did exactly. you guys mention that in the book about the yes. train? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. We tell, tell me you about that. That is actually Ace's Farm, if I recall, um, or was it Ezrin Farms? Can't remember which. Ezrin. You know, it, it's it it's is? one of those. And I've actually got the receipts for the wind chimes on that. So. <laughs> oh, that's the wind chimes. That's you get I mean. the receipts for the wind chime. <laughs> yeah. Well, wow. Somebody get this guy help. Not, not, I not suddenly the, feel much the original cooler than one. I did but, five minutes ago. But there is, you know, that's one of the primary pieces of evidence that makes the Elder an analog of Destroyer. In that you start off with the cinemagraphic or c- cinemagraphic introduction of the washing dishes, setting the stage, turning on the. But you have a more condensed one with Fanfare, obviously being the original first track. You've got the 
the the wind chimes, the oral effects again building. You're, you're is that set- a train sound? It sounds it, like a train. It, it is a train. Um, okay. And what does that come into the plot? <laughs> right. it, it doesn't, but well, it, it, it's setting the atmosphere. In it's that, kind of the whole album. <laughs> yeah. Where's it? it doesn't, but we're just going to leave the it. The train left the station. Is what... Yeah. Oh, yes. There you go. Train the off train, the tracks. Yes. It, it, it's, it's a metaphor for their situation in 1981. But then, you know, you get the monks. So it's setting the atmosphere just right. as the introduction to Detroit Rock City is on Destroyer. And that's what, to me... And I don't know how much of it really comes through in the Focus Revisited that I write, that they were basically making Destroyer over again to the same blueprint. You know, it's it's Bob reaches Bob reaches into his recipe book and pulls out Kiss Destroyer. Okay, here's our introduction. We have to have an intro. We have to have the ballad. We have to have the anthemic call out song you know i use all these different phrases that for want of a having a proper definition for these sorts of songs we have the gene demonic song you know mr blackwell versus god of thunder so yeah go well ahead. you know what bob, there. bob, go ahead i'm sorry Joe. there's no flaming youth there's no detroit rock city there's no uh but there yeah, is classic there kiss is. song. Well, I... There's no there's no classic kiss song, but there is right. a flaming youth. There is a Detroit Rock City. You know, these songs, depending on you know your opinion, can be shoehorned into well, I is shouted out loud. Same okay. th- same thing. Right. The oath is flaming oath youth, is you know, or Detroit Rock City, you know. Right. Yeah. It, it, that's that's just how these songs come across. And yeah, there's only so many different styles that Kiss is capable of. Um, but they have the same songs. It's it's exactly the same thing. Right yeah, to right they... to right to the ending where you have rock and roll demons, you know, on Destroyer, the very last track, which is the the the, the mashup of Alive and the 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 loop right, of the songs. Choir. Yeah. You you have these parts tied together. The original version of Fanfare has parts of Odyssey in it. They took that right. off. They they redid that. The late in, in, in the project. So what was supposed to be I mean Bob's original back back album cover credits has exactly the the original track listing as intended. And mm-hmm. after I at the end is the closing theme so right. n- not the morpheus you know the only remaining bit of dialogue so right and just to back up what julian was saying there with bob told me and i put it in my book and he i sent the book to bob and so he could read his parts and he almost balked at it being in the book but then he thought you know what it should be in there because i want people to know the process he told me that that middle part of beth where the strings come in and kind of play a counter melody uh, in Beth, where there's no vocal, this for like there's no solo there, so the strings take over and they play this this melody. He said the same melody he used in in Comfortably Numb, <laughs> and he used yep. it in the suite in Welcome to My Nightmare for the Stephen into Years Ago. Yeah. He said, listen to that, it's the same thing. It's just a, it's a it's a um, it's derivative, but it's sort of taking something and then doing something off of that. So why wouldn't he do that sonically? Why wouldn't he do that thematically? Of course he would. We've talked a lot about Bob and his impact on the album, and he is interviewed in the book. It's not a lengthy interview in the book. Um, it seems to be cut short a little bit. 
But is is there a reason for that, Julian? Did, did, did Bob not give you a lot, or 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 what, what was what was the, the circumstances surrounding that? Because I've I've seen some stuff that talking about how how maybe you know as as much as Bob was involved in it, there's not a whole lot from Bob in the book. There's been a lot, you know, just like Gene and Paul, Bob has said a lot over the years about the album. We include a lot of the quotes, you know, that he's that have been in publications in the work. I think what provides a more heavy hitting um, appraisal directly from Bob is how we have incorporated his letter to the fans. I mean, that is Bob's Mikulpla. You know, he is saying exactly what he felt about that time, how he views it um, directly, that you don't get in the interview. The interview sections themselves, I mean, it's brief, but I think it's better covered by the third parties because Bob is so closely tied to this as a failure that it's almost better for us to include the sections from other people that directly address the same answers that Bob gave. So... You know, it, it's a certain amount of balance. You know, I'm I'm just thankful that we have anything from Bob in there. You know, simple as that. We have something from Bob directly to the fans and some interview segments, you know, and that is more than good enough when you take the book as a whole because so many of the other interviewees do actually cover, um, you know, what Bob had addressed. And I think it gives it more validity for it to be coming from someone else where, you know, people are so you know, and so easily going to say, well, you know, Gene says this, Paul says that, it can't be true. Well, when you're talking about the Elder and Bob, it's better to have someone else say it, shall we say, because I, I think it makes it far more valid and more and more cutting. So, you know, I, I think how we have Bob represented in there is exactly how Bob wants to be represented in this book. So, I, I, obviously, that's the great interview to get for the book because he is the man who helped create this. Have you gotten any feedback from the Kiss Corporation um, from that end? And you don't have to name names if you had, but um, have you gotten any feedback from the Kiss band itself or employees that work with the band on this? Um, yeah. Okay. And? <laughs> it's been read. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you, right. you, you know and and that goes into you know and uh, i feel like a little bit of a politician here you know i'm gonna do a left turn at albuquerque just like the band did with this album um that's that's why i would have loved to have sat down with tommy as well and talked about this album for him being a fan from 1974 and seeing them right at the beginning to have spoken with him on his perceptions of the album and to have given him an advance of the book to see what these people were saying about it and see how that jived with what he knows from, you know, being one of the, the players who have probably gotten them to play A World Without Heroes to have performed The Oath. You know, it, mm -hmm. it, it, it would have been really cool. So that's that's my circumventing your original question. Yeah, it's been read. Okay. Well, I was good just to... Just to uh, Piggyback quickly on what Julian said as an author and somebody who worked with Bob intensely to make my book. I, I set out my thesis for my book was basically to write a book about Kiss and Bob Ezrin. So he was 50% of it. And I had he was my Wizard of Oz. I kept telling everybody. I waited a year to get Bob. So once I finally did and the floodgates opened, I took everything that he had to say because I wanted to show how that 
informed Kiss and informed that album and changed them to the point where Destroy in and of itself it's its only thing. There's you look at the three albums before Alive and then Rock and Roll Over going forward, the Destroyer just sticks out like a sore thumb. This I thought was really cool in the sense where this sort of in the history book of Kiss, I, I looked at what these guys did as sort of an addendum to what I did in a way because you already have everything that Bob had done, and he blathered on about it in my book, and I'm so glad he did. In this case, I wanted to hear from other people, as Julian said, that were dealing with the fallout of Bob, because Bob here was just kind of draw, dragged from the Destroyer days and from the success of The Wall to save to save Kiss. Yep. And I think, as Julian said, the letter says it all. You know, I, I failed, in a sense, where I brought them in some place they should never have gone at that point. Maybe two years later, if they'd have rebuilt the career or done Creatures of the Night, but not then. So uh, I do think that there is some validity to, like, Bob has said all he can say about and And plus, it wasn't a success the way Destroyer was. So. Absolutely. And I think one of the great interviews in the book is John Picard from The Kings, Mr. Zero. What, right. what you Reduced get out... And some people have questioned, I mean, one of the reviews on Amazon, I, I, I wanted to respond to it in some ways, because I was really rather offended. Why the hell do you have someone like John Picard? I mean, what the hell is he, well, did you read the book? You know, I, 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 I hate to use that phrase, but did you read it? Did you get out of that interview what I did? Because I published the best parts of that interview with him, and he was so gracious with his time before and after the actual interview. This is the guy who was working with the Kings on their second album with Bob Ezrin. Concurrently, they were finishing up that album while Kiss was starting pre-production and work on theirs with Bob. And we all know the stories about how Bob was stretched too thin. Well, this is someone who was affected in the same way. And go listen to Amazon Beach. It's just yet another clone of Destroyer using the motorcycle intro you know, to the album in, in so many ways. Again, you've got the same thing that kind of shows that Bob's... It's not a good period for Bob. Simple as that. But you get the story out of another musician, not Gene or Paul, working on an independent project for another label with Bob Ezrin that really paints the picture of what it was like to be working with Bob at the time. So why do I need Gene Simmons or Paul Stanley to tell me that when someone else whose career was really at the beginning, they, they were on a good arc from their first album, Here Come the Kings. I, I you know... I haven't listened to their album since I, I actually was interviewing him, but uh, you know they they had the same dreams and desires for their follow up with Bob that fell completely, you know, flat. They failed miserably for many of the same reasons that the Elder fails, um, you know. And uh, of course, you find out some more interesting nuggets that if you're wondering what I'm talking about, I say go back and read the chapter again because there's some fantastic. You know, I thought he was the ghost guitarist. Didn't get that, you know. I never did get the ghost guitarist. I have a good idea who it was, but not enough to say. So, oh, come on. Tell us. I Honestly, I, I don't have enough to say. And, you know, it's just okay. one of those well, things. I mean, the, so the, the, moment you, the moment you do name, you open up a can of worms, and I'm not going to do that to KISS fans. Unless I have a high level of confidence in saying so, it would be unfair to them, it would be unfair to KISS, and it would be unfair to the guitarist. Well, yeah, a good hunch. How much? How many of the solos did Paul do? Because he does a good job on the Friday show. That, that's a pretty pretty solid solo he plays on World Without Heroes. Oh my God, that's a thing of beauty. 
absolute thing of beauty. I mean, Paul, and and again, this is something that I get out of the book from Tim talking to all of these people. Paul Stanley has absolutely no reason whatsoever to be ashamed of this album in any way. He steps so far out of his comfort zone, both vocally and musically. Look at the beauty with which this album is captured musically. I mean, it is absolutely stunning as a piece of recorded music. Everything about it, the attention to detail. Paul Stanley's guitar work is exemplary. Simple as that. It's emotive. It is creative. It is perfectly self-edited for each song that he works on. And A World Without Heroes is just a great example of that. It's musical. That's what it is. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. musical. And that's what Bob always brought to this band. And I'll tell you, I, he gives him, he kicks himself silly about his vocal on The Odyssey, but I love it. Because the falsetto and everything, that's nothing he usually does. Give no, me something you don't usually do, please. Paul going way out of his comfort zone vocally, more than anything in my yeah. opinion. It's, not, it's something we had never gotten from Paul Stanley up to that point. There is absolutely nothing tragic about his efforts. His falsetto, yeah, it may be a little bit uncomfortable to listen back to, but you listen to the work tapes for Just a Boy and listen to him working on different phrasings and it's just, Paul, you're an artist. You tried. It doesn't always come out how you want, but look at the execution. Plus, he's... There's so many worse songs and and vocal performances and everything else in the 80s and 90s from Paul Stanley. This, come on, I'm not I mean, I'm not a fan of that period, so I'm bad. I'm sure I'm gonna get tons of hate mail of that. But I mean, let's put the X in sex. And this is awful. But this this stuff on here is is a he, they're trying. He's trying. I agree 100%. I'm glad you brought that up before we finish this episode because. It's just that they beat themselves up. I mean, Gene's not superstar in this either, but they're trying. They really do. I, yeah, and, I and come say, on. Totally, totally, yeah, they're not mailing it in like some some work later on. Oh, totally not mailing. I mean, you know, you I, know they, I, like, I, I've just, I've point, just, they are trying. I've just they're focused on Paul, but look at Gene on this album as well. I mean, only you. Come on. Look at that okay. vocally, A World Without Heroes, vocally. Yeah, Listen but... to what Gene Simmons is trying to bring to the table, as a, again, as an artist. There's effort there. There's, oh, there's yeah. execution. There's commitment. That, you know, it, it's, it's not a shit sandwich by any means. <laughs> from, from the songs to the performances sure. to the music to the production, there is not one facet of this album. And that is what makes it worthy of a deep investigation that the Odyssey book is. That's what I was just about to say. That's why it is great you wrote wrote the book, and that's why the book needed to be written. Because to get the canned answers from Paul and Gene saying it's a great album, not a great Kiss album, or it was a mistake, blah, blah. No, it's not true. There's a lot. They they went out of their comfort zone and tried something different. And I think an artist should be applauded for that. Absolutely. Yes, and I want to get this. I want to get this in too. Steve Ponchard. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. I was on his radio show. It's a Michigan radio show, and I quoted him in my piece. He um, he's a big fan of the Elder, and he said, you know, I listened to it. Maybe he was ten years old when it came out, nine. So he had a different perspective than other Kiss fans at the time. Um, but he said, you got to give Kiss this credit. How many times has ACDC made the same record? 
with the same chord. But I love ACDC. How many times Judas Priest make the same rap? But Kiss tried different things, and for that, they should be getting credit. But sometimes you're going to hit and miss. Bruce Springsteen has been putting out the same record for 35 years. Kiss tried different things. I'm not putting them in any kind of grouping with any of these bands. But in the same way, the Beatles, in a sense, tried different things and were much more successful at that. But at least Kiss tried. They didn't give you the same album every time. Absolutely. And and it's very evident when you listen to it that that Gene Gene and Paul are definitely committed to the album when you listen to it. You can see how much their heart and soul was into it and how much they believed in the project as, as it was being done. And it, you know, it, it's it is much better than, and I can I can appreciate what what they're doing and how their hearts and soul are into it. It's not um, how other albums come off later on down the road, where you can really tell that there there's a lack of effort later on. But with this album, you can tell they were fully committed to what they were and that they believed in the project at the time. Yeah, and Paul admitted that to me when I interviewed him for Live to Win. In 2005 or 2006, he said I had to drag Gene through the 80s. He was making movies. He, if you look, listen to all those albums, and I haven't really because I wasn't really a fan at the time. But there's like one Gene Simmons song on there, or the ones that are on there. That it was basically a Paul Stanley solo effort dragging Gene along, at least his partner. Uh, Gene is still into this. It was his screenplay, his concept. Um, he wrote pretty good songs for it. So yeah, again. This is an album that's called the Worst Kiss Album or a Huge Mistake. And this is from a band that did Hot in the Shade or, you know, all these other albums that are just forgettable as far as no, I'm concerned. I'm, albums. I'm glad you brought up Hot in the Shade because I see Hot in the Shade. No, really? Hot in the Shade and The Elder, for some reason, I find them similar albums in my history because I was happy The Elder wasn't unmasked and I was happy Hot in the Shade wasn't crazy. <laughs> And just well, crazy, crazy nights, another crappy album. Yes. Oh God, don't get but me started on the crazy nights. It gets the crap beaten out of it, and some of it's justified. But I was just so happy it wasn't crazy nights that I liked the album, and I and that's what I initially felt about the elder. It wasn't unmasked, so I liked the album. So I'm glad you brought up Hot in the Shade because I I, <laughs> I see a similarity in my my history uh, in, in that respect. Just recently, like bands. Um, that play out of the box and try new things. I'm, I'm just thinking of the Lou Reed connection. Do you find any similarity recently what Metallica did with Lulu with what Kiss did in The Elder? Or am I just way out there? Uh, I don't know how Lou Reed got on this record. I mean, I know Bob did Berlin with him, which is one of my favorite records of all time by any artist. Um, another reason why I loved Bob and was fascinated by him. But I don't know, Julian, do you get into it all? Because I, I read the book over a year ago now. You sent it to me, I think, right around October or September of last year. Do, was How did Lou Reed get in there? How, how? Bob. It's really just Bob. Okay. Uh, was he in the studio with them? Did he sit down and write with them? Did he oh, just he, get he, the song? Yeah, he, he, was, he was in Canada. And he was also on the end of the phone. You know, he... Um, you know, they they would call him, and he would call them back. And you know, some of the stories are, are well recounted both in our book and elsewhere. You know, yeah. you, you know, he's there for a reason. And I, and I and I'm really not the one to really talk about Lou Reed because 
I only know two of his songs, and they're the ones you hear on the radio. I don't have enough knowledge of his music and Velvet Underground and all of Check that. Check out so, Berlin. And all of Check yeah, I, I did, and and that's the problem because you know I, as part of my preparations for this, I did get every single Ezrin produced alice cooper album and play them sequentially to listen to the developments of the sound of alice cooper and what he was bringing to the band um, in terms of the both the production and as the songwriting um developed i'd listened to lou reed i'd listened to god i can't remember who else i mean babies uh no i did not listen to the babies um <laughs> ours ours nova i listened to um oh. television not television uh, um I'm, I'm trying to think of who it was it was a canadian band um, he was working with an eighty eighty one. So you know, our, ours Nova. That that's an actually more interesting thing to me than Lou Reed is the medieval instrumentation, as I think goes back to the guys he knew in that band. But Lou Lou Reed, I, I just don't have the vocabulary to talk about him where he comes in, though it's pretty clear where he does come in. Well, guys, um, anything else we want to say before we before we wrap? wrap up we've been going for a little while and there's anything else we want to say about the elder Lonnie, about I the odyssey you, i want yeah. to ask you Lonnie, um because uh maybe a year ago we talked about songs that you wish kiss never did and i believe you brought up just a boy so <laughs> probably yeah yeah so <laughs> i i just can you have you i mean do you still feel the same way about that song or just to a certain extent, um, before I read Odyssey, but to a certain extent, I can still say, yeah, I wish they wouldn't have done Just a Boy. It's a little, it's a little out there. Yeah. But I, but I can, but I, but I have a better appreciation. I can say that I have a better appreciation for it and for the process um, and what Kiss was doing at the time than I did previously. It's it is a little bit precious, isn't it, as a song? I mean, it's absolutely. That's a political answer, like Julian was given earlier. <laughs> it's it's a beautiful song, but uh, yeah, very illustrative of the whole album. Well, you, Julian, both you guys get props from me. Last thing I'd like to say is, you know, all the 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 pay stubs and the receipts from the orchestra, <laughs> and I mean, that's just. And you even got stuff from, you know, from the Destroyer. We talked oh, about that that yeah. I didn't have in my – I mean, you're you're just – it's incredible what you guys do. I, I, I don't know how you do it. Keep doing it. Uh, I don't know what you're working on now, um, but uh, loved it. I love the book. I love oral histories, um, and these were done very, very well. And I love the parts that you put in to give perspective to the 1980s, as Joe had mentioned earlier. And um, – you know, just a, a background on the record and the album focus and all the stuff that's in there. It's just a great read. All Kiss fans should have it, for that's, sure. That's very kind. Yeah. I mean, one thing I'd like to sign off by saying is thank you to everyone for their support. You know, we very much have appreciated people's comments, their feedback, and for, number one, buying the book. I mean, you ask people to go out there and give their hard-earned money to something that you put, you know, a lot of work into. We do appreciate it. We appreciate Eddie Trunk mentioning the book um you know anyone who's mentioned the book on air to their audiences you know we we very much appreciate that you know it's it's a very niche thing you know this in the 1978 solo albums book i mean they're, they're they're built on not mammothly successful you know projects so 
you know, I, I had only hoped one thing, that uh, KISS would have put out the deluxe edition of The Elder by now, and I, I'm very disappointed that it, we've not been a success in that. I, wa- <laughs> I, I, I want all that extra dialogue, you know. And you guys yeah, absolutely, be- I want that dialogue. That's the thing I'm most intrigued by more than uh, You and Tim are going to be at the LA Kicks, KISS Expo, correct? That is right. We are both going to be there. We're going to be selling the book, and it's going to be the only opportunity to get autographed copies with both our John Hancocks in. So, how uh, how much extra are you, are you charging for your autograph, Julie? Nothing. Because I think we can make a few extra dollars here. No, we're charging. And I can give you 30% of those extra dollars. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, you're on. I'll take it because it'll be it'll be thirty percent of nothing. No, we're not charging any more than the uh, you know suggested retail of the book on that. Simple as that. It's a, I'm going to try to arrange my schedule. I really want to make it out there. Just to, I want to see you guys and see. And in the la- the only member I have not met is Peter. So oh, he's a sweetheart. I don't care what people say. I love Peter. Very nice to you. Really yeah, happy birthday to P- P- Peter Chris. You're talking? Absolutely. 71 yeah. yesterday. 71, 71 yesterday. On the 21st yesterday. And I do want to apologize. I did complain. I said earlier that I read um, uh, your um, this book, Odyssey, last September, but it was the solo album. So you sent me both books, and I appreciate that. So I was kind of conflating the two, but I read them both back to back, and it was great to do it because they're both fantastic books. Great work. Well, I want to finish up with just a little bit of minutia. Mitch Lafon, trademark. I'll send you the check, Mitch. Um, we published this on September the 15th, or was it the 16th? Whatever date it was. Uh, let me look. Got to get September the 16th, 1981, is the day that the character actors went into the studio to record the dialogue for this. And we came up with a couple of copies of the script, one from uh, one of the actors and another, which I obtained as well. And uh, I just want to read you a quick part. And... Uh, You'll, you'll understand when we talk about missing dialogue. So let's see if I can do this in a nice British voice. And we do so convene this gathering of the elder in the shade of the rose. Morpheus, you have been summoned here to offer your judgment of the boy. You have had him in your care for his first cycle of years. He approaches manhood now. Do you still deem him worthy of the fellowship and of the task we must set him? So you want to talk about missing dialogue? Figure it out from that right brief there. passage. So we do we do have this uh, spoken word script in the book is a longer interview with Brian Brewer, who is the owner of the movie treatment, which was uh, written by, is it the Marx Brothers? Can't, can't remember. Groucho and Groucho. <laughs> no, Jeffrey and you know, off the top of my head, I don't have it. Read the book, um, which is completely different from the sort of feel that we have from this brief segment of dialogue and what you actually have on the album. I mean, that's going into uh, you got to read it. And yeah, Eric oh. the gymnast and yeah, some some I stuff that you more. don't necessarily expect. Right. It, though, I got one more question. You have that whole section where you interview the guy who's going to do the movie. And I've seen, I think we've all seen the little trailer stuff that he put up there. He was trying yeah. to get money to do the movie. Have you guys kept in touch? Has he told you what happened? Is there any chance no. that those people will fit? None. No. Okay. Dead as a doornail. I wanted to keep that in there simply because it was illustrative of the power of the elder. I mean, 
someone who who was going to the lengths of thinking about creating a movie even though it's dead and it was dead and we had uh contemplated cutting that whole section i wanted to keep it in there because it it does sum up the magic the power of the elder and the whole concept of what it represents uh, you know the the failure that we're going to build a project out of just like we built a book out of it and just like someone was building a uh, 3d rendering a virtual uh, reality of the elder you know it, it, it's it's the power of these ideas that kiss come up with you know whether it's tribute bands do recreating shows from specific times to people creating movies out of ideas that they presented on concept albums that just makes the band so different from say aerosmith i mean who, who's doing movies about aerosmith you know right Right. And if I can quote Chuck Klosterman, who you have in the book, whose new book is uh, uh, What If We're Wrong? <laughs> what If We're Wrong? Like Moby Dick completely flopped in um, Melville's lifetime. Maybe this is Kiss's Moby Dick. Yep. But we're all gone. They'll talk about this as one of the great triumphs of 1981 and the history of rock music. That it didn't, maybe, that wouldn't that be something? That it didn't kill him deader than dead. Right. <laughs> I just compared the elder to the Moby Dick. I think you just I'm, compared the elder to Moby Dick. I'm done. I think I've done all like the damage I'm going to do on this show. Gene, Gene is going to be tweeting tomorrow. The elder is greater than Moby Dick. We have you to die first. first. We all got to die first. That has to be like four generations past when people right. discover it, make it a classic. Yeah. Well, over the holiday weekend, why don't you uh, give the elder an, an extra spin, maybe with a different set of ears? And and listen to it and, and listen to um, and listen for some things you might may have missed the other times around listening to it. And if you have the Odyssey, or if you don't have the Odyssey, more importantly, Amazon is a place to find it. Julian Gill and Tim McFade are the are the authors. It's incredible. Do yourself a favor, get a little Amazon Prime and get it here before the weekend so you can enjoy it over your extended holiday break. It's fantastic and you'll thank julian and tim for all their efforts the research the research involved in this book is phenomenal and that's what makes it so compelling is the details that tim and julian go to to make this book as good as it is yeah congratulations fellas it is it is is great and and i always give other members on FAQ podcast a hard time about being Julian Lemmings, but I am the ultimate Julian Lemming because I believe I have all of Julian's books, and Julian can probably attest to that from he probably saves my receipts. So, <laughs> thank you. I, you know, thank you all for your kind words about the book. I know I'll speak on behalf of Tim, who who's not here. We very much appreciate you know the people who've read it and have gotten what we try to present. You know, what I'm going to do with this episode, Lonnie. Uh, is I'm going to post a whole bunch of the different track sequences. I think if you're around over the holidays and you need some time to kill, run these through however you play your music and see which one of these track listings, they're in the book, but if you haven't bought it, uh, it's something that you can do for fun, you know, is run them. I've found the one that works for me, and I'm not going to tell you which one because... My opinion really doesn't matter. Try some of these different orders and see which one you like the best. That'd be fun to do. Awesome. Go through the different track listings in the background while you're reading the Odyssey. Damn right. Thank you guys for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Joe, and good seeing you again, Lonnie. And best of luck the rest of the way, Julian, with the book. 
Thank you very and much. And you can catch Julian and Tim at the LA Kiss Expo in January. Um, they'll be signing copies of it. Make sure you stop by their table and say hi. So for Joe, for James, and for Julian, thank you for watching this very special episode of the Kiss FAQ podcast. Watch us on whatever platform you watch us on. Listen to whatever platform you listen on. And lead us some reviews and feedback on the board or on those platforms. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for spending you time guys. listening to the Kiss FAQ podcast today. All sales are final. There are no refunds. If you'd like, look us up on Facebook or come over to the Kiss FAQ message board and discuss the topic we've broadcast today. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes, Spreaker, or wherever you've listened to the show. We hope you'll join us again. Thank you.